This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. If you knew it was going to be me, it'd just be me and Jen, wouldn't it? <laughs> Nobody else would be here. Okay then, good morning, ABC. This morning's word is from just one very short verse, and it's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 where it simply says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. Blessed is he who obeys the word of God. So this morning's word is called, do you have a positive personal vision? In fact, do you have a vision for your life at all? I've got to say, you know, down the years, having been a Christian since 1975, there's a lot of Christians that I've known who just tend to drift through life. They, they don't seem to have direction. They don't seem to have purpose. They just kind of float around, blown around by the wind of circumstance. And a lot of Christians are very, very passive. And that's because they don't really have a vision for themselves. They can't see what they will become. And so they float around in life and they get blown around by this and by that. You don't want to be like that. You want to be the master of your fate. You want to dominate your circumstances. I don't want to float around like rubbish on the ocean, okay? I want to have direction. If my life is a ship of faith, then guess what? My life should be like a lifeboat. Lifeboats are unsinkable. If they get turned upside down, they right themselves, okay? They can face the biggest storms and the biggest waves, and they can cut through anything. They can turn into a hurricane and still survive it. And of course, a lifeboat is there to rescue other people, isn't it? We don't just live for ourselves. And I think this is particularly relevant because when you have a vision for yourself, you become the master and the commander of your own destiny. And that means that you will thrive. Don't you want to thrive? Or do you just want to survive? In fact, the University of Portsmouth has just done some research on thriving. And this is what they have to say. A person who thrives must be optimistic, spiritual, proactive, flexible, adaptable, socially competent, have good self-belief, enjoy learning, and have a high degree of autonomy. Is that you? Because in my experience, I've got to say, Christians are the very opposite. They're not optimistic. They're pessimistic. They're not spiritual. They're religious. They're not proactive. They're reactive. They're not flexible. They're inflexible. They're not adaptive. They're maladaptive. They're socially incompetent. They have poor self-belief. They despise learning, and they have a high dependence upon other people. Into which of those two categories do you fall? Because if you fall into the second one, you've got a problem. Because Christ isn't in your life. Because Jesus Christ clearly said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Christ came that we might thrive, not survive. And the definition of thriving is simple. To thrive, one must experience a sense of development, of getting better, of succeeding at mastering life. And a positive personal vision will give you the means whereby you can achieve that. So I'm going to give you four reasons, first of all, why you need a positive personal vision. And they're all nautical terms. We've got a nautical theme this morning. These are actually four types of salvage. Are you flotsam? Do you know what flotsam is? Flotsam are goods floating on the water as a result of a wreck or an accident. There's no way of defining ownership. And anyone who discovers flotsam is allowed to claim it. A couple of years ago, a ship went aground, uh, I think off the coast of Dorset. And motorbikes... 
BMW crated motorbikes turned up on the beach, worth about 15 grand. Anyone who took them away could take them away. They didn't belong to anyone. Are you flotsam? Can anyone influence you? Can anyone own you? Can anyone control you? Are you blown around left and right by teaching and by opinion? Just the other day, I looked on Facebook and somebody had posted a warning that there are paracetamol tablets marked P500 that contain the Marburg virus. And I thought a virus couldn't survive inside a sealed tablet, so I typed in the name of the virus on the internet. And sure enough, from America and Britain and Singapore and all of the authoritative agencies saying the same thing, it's fake news. But guess what? People who are flotsam are always caught out by fake news. They just believe whatever they hear. In fact, this is such an important problem. Jesus, or sorry, I should say Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, says these words. Then we will no longer be like children tossed about by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. If you're flotsam, you need a personal positive vision for yourself. Or maybe you're jetsam. Do you know what jetsam is? Goods purposely thrown overboard, but they remain the property of their owner who can reclaim them at any time. Classic example of that is the woman who's been abandoned or dumped by her husband or partner. But guess what? He still owns her. He can turn up on our door any time, day or night, and she'll let him in. If he sees her talking to another bloke in the street, he'll have words with her. If she starts another relationship, do you know what? He's going to tell her that she can't. She is still owned by him, even though he dumped her. People who leave churches because they had to, because they couldn't stay, and yet they're always looking back, always talking about the old church or where they, where they were and what happened. Guess what? That church still owns them. They haven't yet freed themselves from that church. People who are made redundant from a job they love, they're always looking back. They're thinking about the time that they had there in that place of employment. That place still owns them. They're still emotionally tied. They're still looking back. Flotsam and jetsam are well-known words. The next word you might not know. Are you lagging? Lagging. These are goods that are trapped in a sinking vessel. You can't escape from that relationship. You can't escape from that job. You can't escape from that church even though you know it's doing you harm. You can't leave. You can't escape from that business because you've invested too much in it even though it's going nowhere. You can't escape from that family even though it's doing you harm. They're dragging you down to the darkest depths and there's nothing you can do about it. If you're lagging, you need a personal positive vision for yourself. And the final term, which everybody knows but you might not know the origin, are you derelict? Goods abandoned by their owner that can never be recovered. The abandoned wife, guess what? The person who has lost hope in their future. Uh, the lonely person who has no friends. The terminally sick. The chronically sick. The perpetually rejected Christian. The loss of hope just means you just simply give up. It's sad. Now at this point I could say to you, well, why don't you pray the prayer of Jonah? Because he was lost, wasn't he? He was lost in a giant fish or a giant whale or a giant swan peddler, depending on what version of the Bible you read. But you can't. You can't pray that prayer. Because he was lost in something physical, and you're not. When you became a Christian, when you rose out of the water of baptism, the chains fell off and the prison door opened. From that day to this, you've been free, but you've continued to live in a prison. And that is your choice. And three things follow from that choice. And they're not good things. The first thing is this, you'll never have revelation of Jesus Christ in this life. The prison, you see, 
is like a tomb. And when the disciples went looking for Jesus, they found the tomb empty. Jesus was in the garden. Jesus stands in the light, not in the dark. He didn't set you free so he could join you in a prison. He set you free so you could join him in the garden. So you're never going to have revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the word of God will never speak to you. The Holy Spirit will never speak to you through the word. Because the only thing the Holy Spirit is ever going to say to you is, come out into the light, come out into the light, come out into the light. It's like training a dog. You begin by saying, sit, 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 sit. And when it learns to sit, then you can give it other instructions like, go fetch that ball, open that door, read that book. (laughs) If you're training a collie, it doesn't work with other dogs. So actually, the only time you're ever going to hear anything from the Word of God is your own voice, giving you comfort, telling you basically to stay where you are and not to worry. And finally, and this is the bad one, really bad one, the devil knows where you are. And he likes the dark. And he's not going to join you in person. You're not important enough. You know, he's too busy with the Putins and the President Trumps of this world. But he will send his minions, those people, whether they call them Christians or not, in whom there is darkness, they will come to you and they will feed off you and they will take from you and they will weaken you. They will be vampiric upon your life. They will take everything you have and make sure you never leave that prison. And sometimes it's difficult for us to see ourselves because the eyes look out. They don't look in, do they? And you might not know whether you're really in a prison or whether you've just got problems, but the answer is really simple. Just ask yourself this simple question. The people who are closest to you, your friends and family, do they cast shadows on your life or do they illuminate your life? Because if they cast shadows on your life, it's because you're living in shadow. Because if you're living in the light, people can't cast shadows on you. It's as simple as that. You need to leave the prison and go out into the light. And I never really understood why people who are free choose to live in a prison until I started supervising prisoners. And then guess what? Some of them didn't want to leave. And having left, some of them wanted to go back. And I couldn't understand it until I realized, you know what? Prison wasn't too bad. Somebody else provided their food. They had a little bed. They had Sky TV. They had a little library. Prison was too comfortable for them. And the reason you're in a prison is because you've made a little nest there with your problems and yourself pretty. And actually, it's quite comfortable. But the word of God is simple. You need to leave. You need to get out into the light. And in complete opposition to all of that, I'm going to read you a poem. It's a beautiful poem. It was a poem that gave comfort to a man who was in a genuine real prison for 30 years. And he read this poem to himself every day because he had a personal positive vision for himself and for his country. And he believed that one day he'd be released. And therefore he had to sustain his spirit during this time. Let me read you this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The man was Nelson Mandela. The poem is Invictus. We've just had the Invictus Games, haven't we? Those guys, those young soldiers who've had their legs and their arms blown off and their minds messed up with, they could have seen themselves as victims. We could have warehoused them in homes. But instead, they said, no, I am the master and the commander of my fate. 
And Prince Harry, to his credit, organized the Invictus Games so they could show to the world that they're still strong and still able and still capable. You want to be like that. They have a personal vision that is positive, and you need that if you haven't got it. Vision will give your life purpose and direction. It will allow you to overcome obstacles and put opposition in context. It creates faithfulness. Paul said, I was not disobedient to the vision when he was speaking to Agrippa. And you know, some people are called by God to do amazing things, but most of us are just given the talents and told to get on with it. That's the message of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. We're given time, we're given opportunity, we're given gifts. What are you going to do with it? And the trouble is, whenever I mention the word vision to Christians, they become super spiritual, don't they? I mean, you're probably thinking, I know, I know what you're thinking. Jesus riding a unicorn, coming out of the surf, in the background, some scantily clad Chinese chick playing Leonard Skinner's Freebird on an electric violin. Or is that just me? Please remove that powerful but disturbing image from your mind because that is not what I'm talking about. Vision just means to see. That's all it is. Do you see yourself in five years' time? Ten years' time? Fifteen years' time? If you do, how are you going to get there? It's really, actually, very, very simple. And at this point, you might think, do you know what? You're going to tell us now how to get a vision. No, I'm not. That's not my job. Your life, your vision... You work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. You might have a vision thrust upon you, but it's not going to be your own. And maybe God will give you revelation and give you a vision. But maybe he won't. This is your job. This is not my job. What I'm going to do, I'm going to help you see if your vision is real and whether it's actually possible to make it come true and also to deal with the obstacles that might arise as a result. So let's begin. Your vision has to be smart or you'll never achieve it. Do you know what smart objectives are? If you've ever undergone group training, you'll probably have covered it in some way. Specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. This makes a vision real. Otherwise, it's just a wish. And if all you've got is a wish, my advice, pray to the tooth fairy. It's just as likely to happen with him as it is with yourself. First of all, your vision has to be specific. I want to become a doctor. That's specific. I want to have a family. That's specific. I want to be rich. Not specific. How do you define rich? I mean, Rockefeller was the first guy to have a billion dollars, and he was once asked, uh, how much is enough? And he said, just one dollar more. Just one dollar more. If you want to have something that is specific, you've got to be able to outline what it actually is. So, for example, you might want to join the world's 1% of the wealthy. That is specific. Do you know how to do that? It's really simple. Ignore your income. Take away all your debts from all your assets, your investments, the value of your house. And if it comes to more than £670,000, you are in the world's 1%. There are people who bought little terraced houses in London in 1968 who are in the world's 1%. And they're dirt poor, but their house is worth a million quid. So guess what? They're in the richest 1%. I want to win this valley for Christ. That is a specific vision. But it then falls flat at the next stage. Measurable. How do you measure winning a valley for Christ? 90% saved? 10% saved? 4% saved? When you actually cut down on this, you suddenly realize a lot of the things we want are so vague, they can never really be achieved. To want to be a doctor, is that measurable? Here's your certificate. To want to have a family, hey, here's your marriage certificate. You've got a family. Guess what? You've joined the 1%. You have those assets. 
But when you make it so that it can't be measured, guess what? It can't be achieved. And that takes us on to the next level. It has to be achievable. That means you have to be able to describe the means whereby you can get to the point where your vision has been achieved. And if you can't do that, you're not going to do it. So, for example, it's possible that I could become a doctor, even though I'm nearly 60. I'd have to go back to college and do GCSE um, chemistry and biology, which I haven't got. Then I'd have to do the A-levels in it. And then I'd have to do seven years of training. But guess what? By the age of 70, I could be a doctor. But is that realistic? You must be joking. I'm not going to spend the next 10 years doing that. And guess what? You might have a vision that is specific and measurable and achievable. But it might not be realistic for you. Because realistic is always in relation to what we can actually do. So what's realistic for you might not be realistic for me. You want to become a doctor? But you're as thick as two short planks <laughs> and you faint at the sight of blood. It's not going to happen. And we are so guilty in the church of telling people that you can do everything and anything in Christ who strengthens you. But will you do anything at all or will you do nothing? We need to make this faith of ours real, otherwise it isn't a real faith. Don't confuse what is possible with what is practical. And then finally, this vision has to be time-bound. There's going to come a time when you've completed it. The Apostle Paul said, I've run the race. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. You're now a doctor. What are you going to do? You need another vision. I'm going to become a consultant. You become a consultant. What are you going to do now? I'm going to work in Africa. You see, just because you complete a vision doesn't mean you don't have to have another one. You, know, you might want to work for a particular firm for 40 years. At the end of that period, guess what? You retire. You need then a new vision for your life. You're going to need a vision through your entire life so that you can be faithful to God. Of course, some visions are bigger than the individual that has them. Some visions are passed on to the next generation. Henry Ford had a vision for a car company. He's long dead. The car company still goes on. I heard the other day that People's Church in Cross Hands had closed down. I knew nothing about People's Church. Didn't know who was there. Didn't know who the leaders were. But I wonder, when they began, did they have a smart vision? And if they had a smart vision, did they pass it on to the congregation? Did they pass it on to new leaders if new leaders came in? Or did they have a vague vision? And if you have a vague vision as a church, like having a vague vision as an individual, in the end, nothing is really achieved. What tends to happen is that there's a diffusion of effort, and you only have limited resources, you only have limited time. So you've got to cut down and make sure that things happen, rather than wasting yourself and wasting your energies. Secondly, your vision has to be personal. Don't think that buying into the collective church vision can be a substitute for a personal vision. Okay, you've bought into the vision of ABC Church. Great, wonderful. So that's two hours of your week sorted. I'm being cynical. You've got a home group. Four hours of your week sorted. I'm still being cynical. It's in my nature. I don't know why. You serve six hours a week. Wonderful. Tell you what, let's push it out. Eight hours a week you have a vision. What do you do for the other 160 hours? This is why a church vision can't be a substitute for a personal vision. But you say to me, I'm going to work in the church full time. I stand corrected. Then guess what? 168 hours will be dedicated to the church. But bear in mind this. We can't all do that. Because if we did, there'd be no money to pay anybody. Okay? And secondly, there might come a time when you can't work full time in the church. And what are you going to do then? This is why the Jews always taught their sons and daughters to learn a skill 
so they could support themselves in all conditions. And you look at the Bible, you look at the New Testament, everybody, including Jesus, is in full employment before they go into full-time ministry. You know, Jesus is the best example. He's a carpenter or a house builder, however you translate tecton. The Apostle Paul supported himself as an apostle by making sails and by making tents. I think of a friend of mine, same age, highly educated, very skilled. She bought into a church vision in the 80s, which told her that a woman's place was at home looking after hubby and the kids. And she bought into that and she gave up her career. She didn't have a personal vision. In the noughties, the church changed and said, hey, women can have a career. So she went back into the workplace. The kids had long grown up. But guess what? Now she's working for minimum wage and she's working hard and she's going to be working until she's 70. And because she's a faithful, hard-working woman, do you know what? The opportunities have risen for her to work full-time in the church, and she can't. Everybody else she knows has retired or taken early retirement or is in a position where they could work full-time for the church without being paid. She has missed out because she didn't have a personal vision. She bought into something that actually denied her the right to be herself. And remember this, we are Protestants, Okay? Our career is our vocation. In the Catholic Church, they teach to have a vocation is to be a nun or a monk or a priest. Guess what? Our vocation is what you do 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, assuming you're a 40-hour-a-week guy. It might be you're working six days a week. That's where we serve the world. That's where we make a difference. That's where God is manifested to other people outside of the church. But the Bible is very clear on this. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. When we were with you, we gave you this rule. Whoever will not work should not be allowed to eat. We hear that some people in your group refuse to work. They are doing nothing except interfering in the lives of others. Our instruction to them is to stop bothering others, to start working and earn their own food. It is by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are telling them to do this. Pretty strong words, but they had to be strong words. Because in the Roman Empire, if you were a citizen... There was a daily bread ration, which meant that you didn't have to work. If you were a slave, you worked like nothing else. But if you were a citizen, if you were poor, somebody would give you bread. You didn't have to work. They called the bread ration the dole. What the Apostle Paul is saying, don't go on the dole, work for a living. He wouldn't have had to give this instruction to Jews, but he had to give it to Greeks and Romans. Don't tell me the word of God is still not relevant in the 21st century. Thirdly, you've got to protect your vision. Because your vision is your purpose. Treat it like a treasure. Be careful who you share it with, because they might take it from you. Billy Elliot, story of a kid who wanted to dance. Never seen the movie, but I believe his parents tried to stop him. But in the end, he succeeded and he became a dancer. How many movies out of Hollywood have that same theme? Do you know what? You've got to be careful who you share your vision with. How many young Christians have had a vision for themselves that has been trampled on by older Christians or by leaders? or by religious people stamping out spirituality. Hezekiah showed some guys from Babylon the treasury in Jerusalem. And Isaiah said, because of this, they're going to come and they're going to take everything away. And Hezekiah wasn't bothered. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says this, This teaching is a treasure that you've been entrusted with. Protect it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives inside us. How many churches have been robbed of their vision? How many churches have lost their teaching? How many churches don't know why they're there anymore? Because someone came and stole away like a thief in the night. 
When you enter a relationship with someone, when you fall in love, you open up your heart to them. You make yourself vulnerable. You're sharing everything that is dear to you with this other person. And guess what? You've got to be careful because they might hurt you. They might trample upon you. They might damage you. W.B. Yeats wrote a lovely poem called The Cloths of Heaven about this very, very issue. The last two lines of it say this. I would spread the cloths of heaven under your feet, but I, being poor, have only my dreams. I've spread up my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. You've got to open up your heart to fall in love. Sometimes your heart is going to get broken. You just need to deal with it. Tim Farron, he had a vision to be the leader of the Liberal Party. And his vision was stolen away. Why? Somebody asked him a question. Tim, what is your attitude to gay marriage? And he fluffed the answer. He didn't really know what to say. He began to squirm. And in the end, he felt the need to guess what? Leave the leadership of the Liberal Party. But the question was reasonable. He's a politician. You're allowed to ask them questions. But he was a Liberal Christian. I've always had a problem with liberal Christians. It always seemed to me something doesn't quite add up. It's like being a vegan butcher. There seems to be some kind of con <laughs> conflict there between the two. Yeah. Compare him to Jacob Rees-Mogg, a conservative Christian, who on a daytime program said that he didn't believe in abortion under any circumstance, which is something I've never believed. He had a tremendous backlash, but he didn't care. Conservative Christians never care what people think. The DUP in Northern Ireland, they are the political wing of the Free Presbyterian Church. They don't care what people think. They're going to protect their treasure. What happens? Liberal Christians, do you know what? They're so scared of what people think. You can pinch stuff from them all the time. I'm reminded of the words of Frederick the Great in this respect. Mein Schier Alschlein. Do you know what those words mean? You should do. You should engrave them on your heart. Always be more than you seem. Okay? Still water runs deep. Always have reserves of strength there. So that, guess what? No matter what happens, you can always retain your vision. I love the sayings of Frederick the Great. One of his other great sayings was this. The more I meet with people, the more I like my dog. And those of us who have had dogs know how true those words are. Fourthly, what if your vision is no longer achievable? Your vision was to get capped for Wales, win gold in the Olympics, climb Mount Everest, but ill health makes your vision unattainable. What do you do? Maybe you should go back and ask yourself, why did you have that vision? Was it to get the gold medal or was it because you loved the sport? In which case, maybe you could become a trainer or work in the sport in some other way. Sometimes the vision is no longer smart. Under those circumstances, guess what? Get a new vision. Milton, great English poet, had a vision of a godly Commonwealth Republic England in which we got rid of those idiotic Scottish monarchs and just had godly men in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And after cutting off the head of an already short king and actually fighting a war that killed 20% of the population of England, they achieved it. He was a member of Parliament and everything was wonderful. But the aristocracy hated bowing the knee to a commoner like Cromwell, so they invited a psychopathic, syphilitic-ridden king from Holland called Charles II, and God's judgment fell on the country. There was plague, there was fire, the Dutch sank our fleet at Medway, the country went bankrupt, very similar to today in some ways. And everything that Milton worked for fell to pieces. And then he lost his sight. And it's like, why? Why has this happened to me? 
But then he wrote this little poem at the end of his life, and he simply said this, Those who stand still serve. Everything's been taken away from me, God, but you know what? I am still standing in spite of it all. That's a man of God. I love that French grenadier who had fought for Napoleon all the way to Moscow and back. And when he died, he asked that his body be buried upright in the ground so that when his emperor called, he'd already be standing to attention. That's the kind of person you want to be. You had a shared vision that was dependent on others, but they've lost the vision. Happens to new churches, which begin with a fanfare of shared vision, but people leave, growth fails to materialize, disputes occur, people grow weary, or new people join who don't share the original vision. Can happen with friends, can happen with families, can happen with married couples. Marriage is a shared vision, isn't it? Yeah. It's about coming together and believing in the same thing. You've got your vision, she or he has got her, their vision, You've got to kind of merge it together to make it work. But sometimes the other partner leaves. What do you do? How do you deal with the loss of joint vision? You have to have an inner core vision for yourself that actually isn't shared, that can survive the loss of other people. Fifthly, you have a vision for your life. But does God approve of it? Now, if you've got a negative vision for yourself, you fall into those four categories I mentioned before. And that's your choice. Nobody's forcing you to do that. You are choosing to have a negative vision. I wouldn't advise it, but fine. But whatever you do, do not have a negative vision for your children. Seriously. Gillian Lynn was a young girl in school, and she was disruptive. She couldn't pay attention. She got in the way of other kids learning. And finally, the school called in her mother and said, look, there's something wrong with your kid. You need to see a psychiatrist. So she took her daughter to see a psychiatrist and she explained to the psychiatrist everything that was wrong with Gillian. And the psychiatrist listened dutifully. And then he said, look, I need to speak to you, Mrs. Lynn, privately. And the two of them went to leave the room. And having left the room, he just turned on a radio and there was a jazz station on. And they stood outside the room and they looked through the door. And there was Gillian. She started dancing on the floor. And the psychiatrist said to the the mum, what you've got there is a dancer. What you need to do is take her to ballet school. Well, Gillian Lynn went on to be the choreographer for Cats and Phantom of the Opera, and she did 75 productions in all. She's still alive. She's won 10 awards, CBE, Dame of the British Empire. The great thing with Gillian Lynn was that she was born in 1926. If she'd been born in 86 or 96, she would have been prescribed Ritalin. They would have looked at her and said, there's something wrong with your daughter, and we have a pharmacological solution for that. 12% of all American children are on Ritalin. And the weird thing is, with ADHD, attention deficit syndrome, is that it isn't happening in continental Europe, and it's not happening to Hispanic-speaking kids in America. It's just English-speaking kids in the English-speaking world, which is weird. Is it a real condition or not? I don't know, but my feeling is this. There's nothing wrong with kids. Kids are the same the world over. Whether they're black or white or yellow, it doesn't matter. They're imaginative, they're creative, they're mischievous. The problem is with adults, not with kids. And kids will, do you know what? In any situation, they will always fill a gap with their imagination. They'll always try and make things better and different. Classic example, primary school teacher sets her class of six-year-olds a task of drawing things. And there's one little girl there drawing, and the teacher asks her, what are you doing? 
And she says, I'm drawing God. And the teacher says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl says, they will in a minute. (laughs) Or the other example, three little kids, six-year-old, in a nativity. And they've got little towels on their heads, and you know they're coming to bring gold and myrrh and frankincense to the baby Jesus. And one little kid says, I bring you gold. And the other kid says, I bring you myrrh. And the other kid says, Frank sent this. <laughs> Kids make stuff up. Kids make up stuff. They just fill in gaps. There's nothing wrong with kids. There's something wrong with us. And the sad thing is, how many choreographers, dancers, athletes, explorers, adventurers will we not have in this generation? Because the gifts that God has given them, we see as problematic, and we're stealing those gifts with pharmacy and pharmaceutical products. Scripture says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Where are the Vasco da Gamas, the Magellans, the Columbuses, the Rallies? Where are the men who went out and made a difference? Vasco da Gama thought, I wonder if there's a way around Africa to get to India. And he found a way. Magellan said, the world's round. I wonder if I can go around the world. He went around the world. Columbus thought, I wonder if I can get to India by just going west. He discovered America. Although I think the Indians already knew it was there. Raleigh founded the first English-speaking colony in North America and then went on to launch a range of bicycles. These are great people. (laughs) These are great, wonderful, amazing people. And where are they today? I tell you what, God will approve a vision for your life if it's positive for other people, but he won't if it's negative. And then finally, and I'll end with this, are you humble enough to enter the presence of God and actually get his vision for your life. I don't think this applies to most people, but it does apply to some. And I tell you what, it's a dangerous path to take. Some people are actually given a vision by God. And for them, it is inevitable that their lives will end in failure. Terrible thing to say, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. God's vision for your life will break you. Because you're only a human being, but the vision that God will give you is divine. Look at history. Look at the Bible. The vision God gave to Moses broke Moses. The vision God gave to Elijah broke Elijah. It broke Paul. He's on his own in a prison, abandoned by all his friends and followers. It broke Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Spurgeon, at the end of his life, had a nervous breakdown and had to be confined in a nursing home in the south of France. Evan Roberts, his vision lasted 18 months before he had a nervous breakdown. George Whitfield knew what was coming. He said this, I'd rather wear out than rust out. The price that you'll pay, summed up for me best of all by God when he speaks to Ananias about Paul, he says, he doesn't yet know how much he's going to suffer for my name. If God gives you a vision, it will consume you, but it will be a delight to be consumed because those people, I tell you what, like Enoch, they walk with God all their lives. And you might say at this point, well, this is all very well, Ian, but uh, I intend to die quite soon, so this isn't really relevant, or Jesus is coming soon, so what's the point? Let me just remind you of the words of Martin Luther. At the end of this month, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary of him hammering up a sermon on a church door. And if that hadn't happened, you and I wouldn't be Christians today. And he simply said this, if I knew that tomorrow the world would end, 
today I would still plant my tree. Because he knew that the reward is not for the outcome, but for how you use your time. And a personal vision that is positive will allow you to seize the day whether you're going to live to 100 or whether you're going to die in a few days' time. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.